I'm your host, John Beacom. I'm a professor in physics and astronomy. Science matters. It matters for our appreciation of the universe, and it matters for our technological society and how it works. And Science Sundays matters. It matters for informing the public about the frontiers of research, and it matters for inspiring the next generation of scientists. This series, now in its eighth year, is free, aimed at the general public, and considers a wide variety of science topics across the College of Arts and Sciences. Today, we're honored to um, host Professor Harvey Miller from the Department of Geography. He's the Ruscha Chair of uh, Geographic Information Sciences, and he's the director of the Center for Urban and Regional Analysis. So we'll, we'll have his lecture, and then afterwards, there'll be a chance for questions. And then upstairs, we'll go for a reception afterwards, uh, lots of cookies, nice things like that, chance to ask him even more questions. And if you're not already signed up for the Science Sundays email list, I highly recommend it. You can just Google Ohio State Science Sundays and there's a place to sign up. You'll get one email a month. I think everybody can tolerate that. And um, not only is one email, it's a very rewarding one because it brings you to events like this. And uh, without further ado, let's welcome Professor Miller. <laughs> well, thank you for spending part of your Sunday with me. I'm going to talk about something which I think that you're going to find very interesting and very vital because sustainable transportation really is essential for our future. And we're at a cusp right now in our cities and our society where we're populating, we're urbanizing, and we really have to figure out this mobility thing in a sustainable way. And the good news is that there's new science and new technologies that are giving us new insights into mobility in cities. And during this talk, I'll show you some examples of that. So let's start with what we mean by sustainability. And the most common definition of sustainability is from the Brundtland Commission report from 1987, uh, named after Bro Harlan Brundtland, who was the uh, chair of the commission for the World Council on Economic Development. And she spoke at Ohio State a couple years ago. It was really an inspiring lecture. And their report said that sustainability is about meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their needs. So you have both an intragenerational justice here, we have to meet our current needs, and an intergenerational justice in the sense that we have to preserve our development, our civilization, our cities, our environment for future generations as well. And the other thing about her definition is that it, she introduced a three-dimension or three-pillar definition of sustainability. So we often think of sustainability, we think of the environment, minimizing our impact on the earth. But we also have to think about economic sustainability, because we need growth, we need jobs, we need these, these systems to pay for themselves. And we also have to worry about social sustainability. We need to have social equity and social justice. And true sustainability involves all three of these dimensions. You can't just maximize the environment or economic or social and ignore the other dimensions of sustainability. And the bad news is our mobility systems right now are flat out not sustainable. And what I'll do in the remainder of the talk is I'll describe, first of all, why our mobility systems are not sustainable and why this is a big problem. Then I'll talk about how we can get towards sustainable mobility. And of course, that's a big question, a lot of facets to that. I want to focus on some of the data and science that we can use to not only gain new insights 
into cities and transportation, but also use that to help us plan and design transportation systems. I'll give you some examples of our research. I'll talk about some of our work on public transit and physical activity. I'll talk about measuring the carbon footprint of giving people access to opportunities. And I'll also talk about some of our work here in Columbus looking at public transit delays and their implications. And then finally, I'll conclude with probably the question why most of the people are in the room here today. What about autonomous vehicles? What about self-driving vehicles? Don't worry. Wait for that. I will give you my opinion on, on those. So first, some good news before I get into some of this doom and gloom about unsustainability of our mobility systems. We truly live in an age of miracles when it comes to transportation and mobility. We can move around at all scales, daily, locally, regionally, you know, um, nationally, internationally, way more than previous generations could have dreamed possible. I'll give you an example. Nowadays, uh, you know, daily travel of 30 to 40 miles is not unusual. That is how much people would travel in an entire year 300 years ago. I mean, we just can do more things, see more places, uh, see more people, access more opportunities than our ancestors would have imagined possible. And all, this all would have seemed like magic to them. So that's the good news, and there's a lot of benefits from, from this high level of mobility that we enjoy in modern society. But there's a lot of bad news, unfortunately, associated with that. One is climate change. Transportation is the largest source of greenhouse gases in the United States. And most of that are personal vehicles, automobiles, SUVs, light-duty trucks. That's the majority of greenhouse gases from transportation, which is the majority of greenhouse gases in the United States. And this is growing elsewhere in the world as the world gets wealthier, urbanizes, and people are motorizing and buying more vehicles and wanting to enjoy the same levels of mobility that we do. Energy. Cars are the least efficient way to move people from an energy perspective. Think about it this way. When we ship people around a city in cars, we're basically taking roughly a 200-pound package, a person, and wrapping them in a three to 6,000-pound shipping container to move them around the city. If Amazon did that, they would be out of business in, in, in a week. And, and also, cars are just, you know, they're just really terribly energy inefficient. One of the, um, you know, the biggest thing that a car moves when it's moving through a street is itself and then the gas, the air inside the car, and then the person, like third or fourth, depending on how you measure that. So, and also, internal combustion engines are really, really energy inefficient. Most people don't realize that. Only 15% of the energy generated by an internal combustion action engine is actually used to produce momentum. Most of the energy is lost in, in heat and noise. So electric vehicles will be an improvement on that, but we're still, work, we're still working on that same paradigm of putting people in these 3,000-pound ship containers. Air quality. Um, there's a wide range of bad health impacts from, uh, from bad urban air quality. And this is a global public health crisis. Most cities in the world have terrible air quality. Most Americans live in cities with bad air quality. And most of that is from automobiles. And a wide range of very, very bad health impacts from heart, cardiovascular, and also cognitive uh, um, development problems. So there, there's studies to show that children who go to school that are near busy intersections and highways suffer from cognitive disadvantages and, and lower cognitive development than children who go to schools that are away from busy highways and busy intersections. A lot of evidence on that. Congestion. The average American spends more time in vacation, on, in traffic than on vacation. 
So right now in a big city, roughly, the NREX just came out, their latest report for 2018. The worst city in the United States for traffic congestion is Boston. The average Bostonian spends 128 hours in traffic every year. Here in Columbus, we're not as bad. We're around 80 hours of traffic every year. It's an average Columbus resident. But that's still a lot of time when you consider how much time of low-time Americans have for vacation. Social equity. Americans spend more on automobiles than they do on food and health care. So the average American, average household spends around $10,000 a year maintaining their automobile for everything. You know, the, the, you know, the buying the automobile, maintaining it, gasoline, wear and tear, things like that. The median income in the United States is $50,000 a year for a household. So 20% of the average household income in the United States is, States is spent on this object that spends most of its time empty and stationary, not being used. Think if we can move beyond ownership, generate mobility and accessibility without ownership, without the need for people to own cars. Don't you think the average household in the United States could use a 20% increase in their, in their income? They could, do, they could do a lot with that. Health, the lack of physical activity has been linked to obesity and lifestyle disease epidemic. Right now in uh, many, many states in the country, we have uh, over a third of the population is um, clinically obese and some things like diabetes, joint problems, cardiovascular problems, and some form of cancers have been linked to the lack of physical activity in modern American society. We basically have engineered physical activity out of our daily existence for the most part. Safety. Traffic accidents are the leading cause of death for Americans age 5 to 34. So those of you in the room who have children or grandchildren, the main reason they won't reach their, their mid-30s is because they'll be killed by a car. Think about that. And this is becoming the leading cause of death for, in, in, for poor and middle-income countries, places like Southeast Asia, Africa, Middle East, places like that. And this chart here is from The Economist that shows how road traffic accidents in poor middle-income countries is becoming basically worse than AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria, and other forms of uh, diseases that usually kill people in that, that part of the world. So this is a news article that just came out a little while ago. So I think this is from NPR. And it says, Americans are more likely to die of an opioid overdose than on the road. And this was really shocking. This made media a few weeks ago. And I, we should be shocked by this. This is a terrible scourge. It's per, they're preventable deaths. And consequently, the federal government and the state of Ohio, and up, as well as other states, are spending millions of dollars trying to battle the opioid epidemic. But nobody is shocked that you know, it's just surpassed motor vehicles. Why aren't we shocked about motor vehicle deaths? Those are preventable deaths, too. Why aren't we launching a war on motor, motor vehicle deaths? Pardon me? Right. Well, we, that's something we need to battle against. Okay. Well, thank you for your comment. Another thing about automobiles is that they induce sprawl. They induce sprawled urban landscapes. And that's expensive. So this chart here on the left here, I'm showing you the, the, uh, you know, the, the, area, the formula for the area of a circle. And we all know from, you know, from school-age geometry that as the radius of the circle increases, the area increases as a square of the radius, which means the area gets bigger geometrically, exponentially. It's the same thing with the city. Cities are just like that. As the radius of a city like Columbus increases, the area over which we have to provide infrastructure and services also increases at the same rate, which means the expense goes up geometrically. 
that's a big problem for cities. It's, it's not bad in a place like Columbus, because at least we're growing in population, but in cities like in Northeast Ohio, which Northeast Ohio is shrinking in population, yet it's sprawling still at the same time, that's a fiscal time bomb for a lot of the cities up there, because you'll have, you have fewer and fewer people supporting more and more expensive infrastructure. And someday that's going to cause a reckoning, either in terms of decline in city services and infrastructure, or raise taxes, or declines in quality of life. And not only is it expensive for cities, it's also expensive for households. So this is a map showing affordable neighborhoods in Columbus, which are in yellow. What we mean by affordable is that for average regional household income, not spending more than 30% of their income on housing. So the yellow areas there, just looking at housing, that's what's affordable. That's based upon census data on travel, where people like travel to Columbus or to Newark or where they're commuting. Now, right now, that looks pretty attractive, like a lot of affordable housing, but the affordable neighborhoods. But this only includes housing costs. And when we think about affordable housing, we don't think about transportation costs. So if we switch this and now we change it to affordable housing plus transportation, means that combined together, a household should not be spending more than 45% of their income on both housing and transportation. We could see a completely different picture about Columbus. We could see that the suburbs now are not as affordable as, as we think they are. So this is something that we really need to start thinking about when it comes to households again, the fact that transportation adds this extra expense to households and really can harm their ability to spend on other things like education, jobs, you know, investing in their house, investing in their lives. It's something that uh, is a real drag on, uh, on our economy. And this is really important because we are in an urbanized world. So in 2008, civilization passed a milestone, a, a, a very monumental milestone. In 2008, over 50% of the world's population lives in cities. Now that's really different. Most of human history, like one or two or three percent of the population lived in cities, what we would call cities, and only since the Industrial Revolution has it really urbanization really taken off. And it's really taken off in the 20th and especially the 21st century. So a lot of urban scientists and geographers think that by the end of the 21st century, 80 to 90% of the world's population will crowd into cities. And some geographers, like Michael Batty, who's a very famous urban scientist at University College London, says for all intents and purposes, we will be a planet of cities. That most of the, the vast majority of the population will crowd into cities. And this is a world of 10 billion people. We have 6 billion now, 4 billion people are coming by the end of the century. That's a lot of people crowding into a small space, all trying to move around and conduct their lives and do things. So we have to figure out this sustainability for transportation for our mobility systems quickly if our civilization is to survive the 21st century, to put it frankly. One of the ways we can do this, and this is talking about how we can move towards sustainable mobility, is that we need to develop new measures. And one of the problems we have with the way we design cities and transportation in the United States is that we base all our performance measures on cars. Our performance measures are based on how many cars we can shove through the system on a daily basis. And the outcome of that is that we plan for cars. And it's way past time to update these outdated and harmful 20th century concepts and measures. So this is an example. This is, um, every traffic engineer in the United States is familiar with this. This is the level of service. This is how traffic engineers rate roads in our cities. Level of service A is the best, free-flowing, uninterrupted traffic. 
and it degrades like 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 grades in a classroom, degrades all the way down to F, which is a force breakdown of flow, completely jammed, and uh, that's how basically how traffic engineers grade our roads. Which you know sounds reasonable, but let's look at two examples of two roads here in Columbus. The top there is the short north, and here is Front Street, downtown Columbus. A traffic engineer would rate that street as failing and this street as successful. Now, from the measure of shoving cars through the road, yes, that's right. This is an unsuccessful street, and that's a successful street. Great. But which street is more lively? Which street generates more income for the city and tax revenue? Which, city, which street do you want to spend some time in? <coughs> which street would you bring visitors to? Which street is more iconic of Columbus? Now again, I'm not saying that all streets should be like the short High Street and the Short North. Not at all. We do need streets like Front Street. The tr but the trouble is, is that traffic engineers who drive a lot of our transportation planning use the same grade for all streets with only a handful of exceptions. So they're trying to impose this model on the bottom throughout more of the city, throughout more of our cities. And that's something that we really have to question. We have to question, is congestion bad in all places? Maybe there are places where this type of street is good. And I would argue that that, 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 that should be a lot of our streets in, the, in our cities. So we have to shift the way we're planning cities, the way we're planning mobility. And this is from a very uh, influential paper by David Bannister from 2008. And it summarizes how to go from conventional transportation planning to sustainable transportation planning. And I'm not going to go through all this. I just want to highlight a few of these. We stop thinking about the physical nature of the streets only, you know, trying to get cars through the streets as much as possible, and start thinking about some of the social aspects of our streets and of our transportation systems. We don't think about mobility per se, but we should think about accessibility. Accessibility to jobs, opportunity, you know, healthcare, education, things like that, which can involve transportation solutions, mobility, but also could, be, could involve bringing these things closer together. That's a wider focus of just mobility. Uh, we think, um, instead of just thinking of the economic performance, we think multidimensionally, we think about the environmental and social aspects. We stop thinking of street as road, which means streets are only there as a conduit for automobiles, and think about street as space, a space that's a shared public mobility space that other users have rights to, pedestrians, cyclists, and yes, even scooter riders. <laughs> That's the way streets were for most of urban history. Cities have been around for 5,000 years, and it's only since the 1920s that we flipped streets and made them conduits for cars primarily, and not shared public spaces. We're not as concerned about speeding traffic up. We're concerned about slowing movement down, especially in residential and pedestrian areas. And we try to make time reasonable and reliable rather than just make it minimized. And we also think about not one particular mode, like automobiles, but we think about multi-modes, walking, biking, public transit, all integrated into a holistic, linked mobility system. So we need new sustainable mobility measures. We need measures that are multimodal, that recognize all travel modes, that are people-based, not vehicle-based, but based upon people, and also capture what were known as externalities, the negative impacts of transportation, such as poor health, poor air quality, and things like that. Now, luckily, we're living through a scientific revolution. I feel privileged to be a professor in this area at this point in history because we are living through a true scientific revolution when it comes to transportation and cities. 
We have things such as location-aware technologies, GPS recorders, cell phones, that can record, give a sense of dynamics at a very detailed level. We can use sensor networks to measure the environmental and other types of uh, things that are happening in cities as people move through them. We have new data analytics for handling this voluminous mobility data we've been dealing with. We even have computational tools that allow us to simulate cities from the bottom up. So if we don't have data about a city, or say we want to look at a future city, what's going to look like in the future, we actually have computational tools that allow us to simulate an entire city at the level of the individual vehicle over the course of a day. One of these models exists for Chicago. They can actually model every single car in Chicago over the course of a day. If you would have told me 30 years ago when I was a PhD student here at Ohio State that they would have, we would have data and models like this, I would have thought you were out of your mind. But, you know, it's magic. It really is magic. And it's giving us new insight to cities, new insight into their dynamics, and also new insights to seeing how the individual behaves in the city, not treating people in traffic like they're undifferentiated, undifferentiated flow, like water, but actually looking at the social consequences and the differentials that we see in the city. Who's, who's privileged, who's disadvantaged when we, when we think about new transportation plans and policies. So I'm going to give you three examples from my research. The first one that answers the question, does public transit generate physical activity? And this is from a um, grant we had from the NIH a few years ago. I'm going to answer the, also talk about a second project where this is funded by the National Science Foundation, where we looked at the carbon footprint of access to opportunities. And then more recently, we have a new partnership between the Center for Urban Regional Analysis, which I direct, and the Central Ohio Transit Authority, CODA. We have a new data partnership where we're working with some of their data to get new insights into the dynamics of the bus uh, system here in Columbus. So the first one, this is the, um, does public transit generate physical activity? This is from the Moving Across Places study, MAPS, what a great acronym. I wish I could say I made that up, but uh, one of the grad students did on the project. Um, and we were looking at the impacts of light rail transit and complete streets on physical activity. Complete streets is the idea that streets are incomplete if they're only for cars. Com streets are complete when they can accommodate pedestrians, cyclists, public transit, and other users. So in Salt Lake City, they built, I used to be on the faculty at the University of Utah, and they built a new light rail line, and along that light rail line, they did a complete streets renovation. They widened sidewalks, they put in street furniture, they put in a bike lane, they put in trees for shade, and things like that. So we knew this was coming, and we decided to perform a quasi-experiment. We identified people who lived near the light rail line and the complete streets renovation, and then we also identified people who live far enough away that they're not likely to use that, but in the same neighborhood, and we wanted to measure their behavior before and after this innovation. So this is a map of the, uh, of the new light rail line. So this is downtown Salt Lake City. This is the existing light rail line, those squares right there. And these circles here are the new light rail line built through this neighborhood. The blue, dot, the blue uh, boundary there shows people who live within one kilometer of a light rail stop, of the, of the new light rail stop. And the reason why it's not even, because we're working with network distance, how far people have to walk. So that's one kilometer walk from a new light rail line, from the new light rail line. And the red is between one kilometer and two kilometers away. So the people in the blue, we know from research about who we use public transit, people in the blue boundary are more likely to use this new light rail line and um, complete streets renovation, which again, went right along this line right here, this light rail line. And the people, 
That's weird. The people in the um, in the red are people who are not likely to use it, but still live in the same neighborhood, so they have similar socioeconomic and lifestyle characteristics. So what we did is that we identified people in the neighborhood, and we found about 536 people who completed both waves of this of this study, and we did height and weight measurements for them, and that's not any of the you know, participants in the study, that's who the students pretending to weigh each other and measure, measure each other. And we gave them a GPS receiver, a, a scientific grade GPS receiver, and an accelerometer. Both things you find in your cell phone, that accelerometers measure activity, but these were scientifically calibrated ones that were very precise. And we got people to wear them for a week before, in 2012, before they built this light rail line. And then the same people, 536 people, wore those devices for a week after this new light rail line was built. And then we worked with a company called Westad, and what happened was that the research assistants would go into the participants' home, would plug the GPS and accelerometer into a laptop, it would be uploaded to a server, and then fused and map-matched. And we would show them an episode where it seemed like they were being physically active. So this is, by the way, again, not violating anyone's privacy. This is my old bike ride to work when I worked at the University of Utah. We, the, all the, per, the senior investigators wore these devices for a week to test them. And if, if they spotted physical activity, it would come up and say, do you recall this activity? Here's the date and time. And if I say yes, as a participant, they would go through questions and ask about, like, well, why are you active? What were you trying to do? Did you feel safe? Things like that. And also, because we have both GPS and accelerometer data, so we know not only where the person was, but how active they were, and also how they were moving through space, accelerations and decelerations, we could detect what mode they were using without even asking. We could tell if they were walking, biking, using a car, bus, or using light rail. So here's an example of the scale of the data. This is uh, Salt Lake City, and this is showing all 4 million GPS plus accelerometer data points. 2012 on the left, 2013 on the right. It's color-coded based upon whether the person lives near the light rail line or, or, or away. Green is near and blue is far. And this is showing their GPS traces over the entire week that they wore, each participant. Uh, you really can't tell anything from that. This is the definition of big data to me, because you just map this naively, and you look at that and you say, what does it tell me? Nothing. We have to get clever. We have to like sift and sort through this data and do interesting analysis to get insights from these patterns. So what we did is that we divided people into four groups. And this is based upon what we detected from the GPS and accelerometer data. Not by asking them, but we wanted to know actually what they did, not what they would self-report, which is often different from what people actually do. So we divided into four groups, our, our 536 people. Never were people who in 2012 or 2013, either before the new light rail line or after, did not ride public transit. They were never, never transit riders. Continued were people who we detected rode public transit in 2012, also rode it in 2013 after the new, new light rail line. Former were people, and there were a few of these, people who used public transit in 2012 but did not use it in 2013. And new were new riders, people who did not use transit in 2012. New light rail line was built, then they used public transit. Again, this is just based upon the data we picked up from the GPS and accelerometers. This is showing change in active physical activity time by group over a, normalized over a 10-hour wear period. And we can see this is showing a pattern of significance. So the people who did not change their behavior, people who never rode public transit, and people who continue to ride public transit, they had no significant change in their physical activity time. Nothing changed in those two years 
for them. People who stopped using public transit had a significant decrease in their physical activity time, and people who started using public transit had a significant increase in their physical activity time. And to confirm that it was related to the public transit line, we mapped the data. So this is a heat map, and I'm showing density of GPS and accelerometer data points. So over here, here's the existing light rail line, those dots right there, and the, the red and orange there shows based on the accelerometer and GPS data, where people are physically active. And we could see they're very clustered on the existing light rail stops. By the way, these other little diamonds here, or excuse me, triangles, are bus stops, are bus stops for both time periods. So that's the pattern of physical activity in the neighborhood based on the, um, before the new light rail line was built. And here's, on the right side, is after the new light rail line was built. There's the five stops of the new light rail line, and we can see that several of them have generated new hotspots of physical activity. The only ones that haven't are the two in the middle, and those are near industrial land uses and the state fairgrounds, so nobody lives there. But in these ones on the east side and west side where people live, they became new hotspots of physical activity, these new light rail stops. Now you say, well, a few more minutes a day or 10 hours, does it make a difference? Here's their BMI. So again, um, this is showing changes in body mass index between 2013 and 2012. The people who did not change their behavior, the people who never rode public transit but continued to ride it, no significant change in BMI. People who stopped riding public transit had a significant increase in their body mass index. And people who stopped riding public transit or started riding public transit, the new people, had a significant decrease in BMI. So we can demonstrate the good health benefits, physical activity, and BMI on th for public transportation, that this actually generated new physical activity in the neighborhood. And we also um, looked at other things. It didn't cannibalize the existing bus system. We also checked whether, because people are now walking to public transit, did they not go out and do recreational walks or walk their dog in the evening? No, this was actually new physical activity on top of the recreational physical activity they were doing anyways. All good news for uh, the impacts of public transit on health and for making a health-based case for better public transit in our communities. I'll go on to the second example. This is looking at accessibility. I mentioned this already, that we're we think beyond mobility. We think about accessibility. How do we create access to things like jobs, education, healthcare, which can involve both mobility strategies, but also land use planning and location strategies. And we wanted to know, how do we provide access to opportunities in an environmentally sustainable manner? Because if we're improving people's accessibility to environment, and if they use cars to enjoy this uh, improved accessibility, that has a carbon footprint. So we wanted to say something about this trade-off between giving people access to things, but what the carbon footprint is. And we use something called a space-time prism. And this is a very powerful individual level accessibility measure that's the state of the art in measuring accessibility. And it answers a simple question. Where can a person be in space and time given constraints on their lives. So here's a conceptual one. We, I'll walk you through this really quickly. So here's two-dimensional space right here, like a map. Now imagine there's two what we call anchors. One of them is your home location, let's say, and there's, your, there's work. Just for example, it could be any two anchors. Any place where you have scheduled constraints where you have to be at some, at some time. So let's say a person can leave home and has to be at work, let's say, 35 minutes or so later. If we know, um, if we know that, and this is, this axis here is time. So if we know that, we know they're leaving their home at this time, 
and they have to arrive at work at that time, we, there's a time budget for them to travel to work and maybe do something along the way, buy a coffee, drop a kid off at daycare, uh, buy something at the grocery, something like that. So if they have to stop and do something, and then we know the maximum speed limit, how fast the person can travel, we can form this bubble in space-time which shows where and when they could be with respect to time. It's like a light cone in physics, you know, but basically instead of using the speed of light to demarcate things, we're using the speed of human travel. That's what it looks like conceptually. This is what one looks like in reality. This is for Salt Lake City again, where I used to live. This is showing a person who left home at, at 6.48 in the morning and arrived for work at the University of Utah at 7.24. That's the map of Salt, Salt Lake Valley, and along this axis here is time, and each one of those wavy lines is a three-minute increment. So every one of those shows another three minutes into that travel episode where they could have been. And as, we, as they move closer to work, you know, the bubble starts to, you know, basically traces them and it shows not only the path they took, it doesn't show the path they took, it just shows where they could have been over time until they finally arrived at work. Here's another example. This is from Columbus here. So what we this is one of my students, Jin Lee, who's doing some dissertation work on space-time accessibility. We wanted to know what would be the impact of the new CMAX bus rapid transit on access to jobs and healthcare in Linden, in Northeast Columbus, which we know is very deprived when it comes to both access to jobs and healthcare. So what we did is we looked at two time periods, off-peak and on-peak, and we took the actual code of bus schedules that's published using the GTFS uh, data feed, and I'll talk about that in just a moment, about that data. But we looked at, uh, basically, uh, we, we looked at the bus schedule, we, and we calculate here how far a person can travel from that red dot in 30 minutes or 60 minutes, which is yellow and green, 30 minutes and 60 minutes, by taking code and walking. So we actually, we actually uh, had the bus schedules and the bus routes, and we also had a sidewalk network that we actually registered with this. So this is shown before CMAX, one, one in the afternoon, based on traveling at that moment in time, based on the code of bus schedules, and 6 p.m., and again, yellow and green are showing how far you can get in 30 minutes and 60 minutes from that location. Down here is after CMAX, same time period, but now with the CMAX route in there, with faster travel, and we can see that the area that a person can travel in 30 or 60 minutes has elongated, has gotten bigger. They can cover more geographic territory now because of this new bus rapid transit. And we can overlay, we did for this paper, which is referenced down here, we overlaid this with jobs and healthcare data that we have, we have address level data for that. And we can demonstrate that CMAX has improved accessibility to jobs and healthcare in Linden. Of course, we're not saying that people are riding the service, we're just saying potentially we've improved their accessibility through this public transit line. So that's what we do with space-time prison. That's how we measure accessibility. We wanted to know, well, what's the carbon footprint of these things? So if we have a space-time prism, we make it bigger and you can reach more things, what about the carbon footprint of that? What's the environmental impact of that additional accessibility? So I worked with a guy named Xu Song Zhao, who's a tra traffic engineer, transportation engineer at, the, at Arizona State. And we found, we, we, we determined the space-time prism, which is between uh, Arizona State and some shopping mall in Scottsdale. And we basically calculated a 25-minute space-time prism, and it was based upon the speed varying by street. So we actually have data on how fast you can travel on every single street in Phoenix. And we combine that with a model of uh, where people are likely to travel and how fast they can travel. 
And we basically wanted to know, well, can we measure the carbon footprint of this thing? Can we model it? So we basically can feed this data into an emissions model and calculate what's the expected emissions of travel between those two locations. And to verify this model, what we did is that we defined a bunch of routes between those two locations, and then we used something called an onboard diagnostic device. Every car built in America since the year 2000 has a data port behind the dashboard. You can go look for it and go back to your car tonight. And you can plug in one of these OBDs, and if you plug it in, it basically runs, and it gives you second-by-second -second engine performance diagnostics. And you can use this to model energy consumption and emissions from the, from the vehicle. Every car since 2000 has one of these. So we got that, and we got a GPS, and we basically hired a bunch of students to drive a bunch of routes between these two locations, given a 25-minute time budget, and we gave them detailed instructions. And by the way, there were two students in every car. One was navigating, one was driving. Safety first. <laughs> and we used this uh, data to basically calibrate our model to see what if we can uh, if we can basically measure the impact on um, on CO2 emissions and, and carbon and, and carbon footprint. And that's what this is showing. This is showing over time as as the car travels from Arizona State to the Scottsdale Mall where it could be within the street network of Phoenix and what the expected emissions are associated with that. So now we can say something about improving access to jobs and healthcare, but what's, what's the carbon footprint and the air, air quality footprint of that? We can also do things like say, well, what happens if we change speed limits? So on the left side here is the prism area. The bigger the prism, the more access to opportunities, everything else being equal. So here, if we increase the speed limit by five miles per hour, we can increase the prism by about 28%, but we're increasing CO2 emissions, CO2 emissions by that much. And if we lower the speed limit, we're shrinking the prism by around 19% or 10%, 19 or depending on which direction you're traveling. And we also can reduce uh, CO2 emissions by a, by a dramatic amount. So now we can look at different what-if scenarios. What if we build new roads? What if we do traffic calming to slow cars down? Things like that. Third example I want to show you pretty quickly is the what are the impacts of public transit delays. And I mentioned this data already, GTFS, General Transit Fee Specification. This is something that Google basically imposed upon um, transit agencies, not imposed, but basically created on behalf of transit agencies. And it's a standard format for publishing data. And it allows public transit agencies to share their both schedule and real-time bus locations. So if you look at like transit apps and they give you real-time information on where the bus is, how far away it is, it's because of this. All these transit agencies in the country now are publishing data in this format, both schedules and real-time bus locations, so that people can build apps to help people navigate the system, including our good friends at CODA, and they are our good friends. So this is an example of something we built. I'll get this started in a second, but this is actually live. I'll give you the URL for this. You can actually play with it yourself. On the left here, I'll just start this going right Right now, I think. Second, you should. Start the other. That's okay. Here we go. So this is a data browser, a map-based visualization that we created for Coda's schedule and, and bus data. So this is showing a map of Columbus, and that's it's sped up quite a bit just for purposes of illustration. Obviously, <laughs> just wanted to show, make it a little more exciting for the talk today. But this this is showing on December seventh at six a.m. where the buses were in real time. And over here is a delay curve. We calculate the difference between the schedule and the actual locations of the bus, and we calculate the total hours of delay, and that's comparing two days, December 7th, 2018, with January 8th, in yellow, 2019. 
And we also can sort buses based upon the amount of delays. And I, I, you could do this live yourself. You can click on this, and it'll resort the buses based upon delays. And if you click on a particular bus, it'll show you the bus route and show you that one, what, the one that's being most delayed. Uh, Mike Bradley from CODA has told me that when he gets an incident report about a bus being really late, he goes actually to this browser we have online and checks what, what happened that day. Um, but we've been collecting this data since February 2018, and we're collecting it and archiving it now up, up, until, up until this moment in time. So you can actually, I'll give you the URL on the next slide, but you can actually go to this website and play around with this data and, and look at um, look at uh, bus delays and things like that, and at any day going, any day and time period going back one year and counting, counting into the future, of course. What's the difference between the red and the blue? Oh, um, the red is regular service, blue is express service, no, regular, frequent, and um, green is express buses. So red standard service, blue is frequent service, and green is express buses. Yeah, thank you for asking that. Now here's another app you can play, another way to look at this data. Again, there's the URL down there, it's curio.osu.edu. Curio is an urban data dashboard that we built for Columbus and is live, and you can go to and play around with a lot of data both dynamic and static in map form for Columbus. But this is, an, this is another app we built. I'm not going to do a live demo here because that's always too nervous to do that on the stage. But uh, basically, this shows, that's a location right here outside Ohio State, outside the Ohio Union. And this is for the day, uh, this is January 9th, 2019 at 8 in the morning. The blue shows how far you could travel by code in an hour according to their schedule. So as you can see on those little circles here, you get off at a bus stop, then you can walk away from the bus stop. So the blue shows, based on the schedule that day, how far you could travel in an hour, and red shows what actually happened on that day, given the real-time location of buses. And the difference, the reason why red is smaller than blue is because of bus delays. And bus delays occur mostly because of traffic delays. So this is what code is trying to deliver in terms of accessibility, but here's what they're actually, actually delivering, at least on that day, because of um, traffic delays and bus delays. And again, you can go back to any time period, back to February 2018, and do this yourself, and you can actually move this cursor around the screen, and it'll automatically be generate a new accessibility surface based upon schedule and real-time information. Here's something else that one of my students is doing, a Liu Liu. Um, he's looking at the impact of bus delays on transfer risk. So let's say you're traveling by public transit and you gotta make a transfer. If your bus is delayed, you might miss the transfer and there's a big time penalty involved in that if you have to wait for the next bus. This is showing based upon just two months of data, January, February, 2018. It shows over, the, over each hour of the day the pattern of time penalties for missing bus delays. And right now we're doing this analysis for the entire year, for the average for the entire year. We're also gonna do it by quarter and by week and by month and things like that. A big pattern we're seeing here is that during rush hour, most bus delays, most big time penalties for missing transfers are downtown Columbus. Later, especially later in the evening, those penalties actually decentralize and you get bigger penalties on the edge of the city because that, at that time of day in those locations, the bus schedule is sparser and if you miss a transfer, you have to wait a long time, in some cases as long as two hours for the next bus. By the way, you would think COVID is upset about this. They're not. They actually love us for doing this. They want to understand. They want to improve their performance. They want to think strategically about their bus system. So the first time I showed this to code, I expected a negative reaction, but they were really happy because they don't have the mandate or resources to do analysis like this. 
This is part of our partnership between Ohio State and this local transit authority to try to work with the data and do some interesting science, but help make public transit better and make Columbus a better place to live. So now let's talk about the elephant in the room, autonomous vehicles and self-driving vehicles. This is why everyone came here today. What about these things, these wonderful things that are going to automatically drive themselves, they're going to talk to each other, you're going to be able to play dominoes with your family while traveling, or at least comfortably read a book. Not a Kindle, by the way, an old-fashioned book, this guy. He's, he's old school. They're promising a lot from these things. And they, they, it, some of it is very valid, let me put it that way. I'm in favor of Thomas vehicles because of the safety consideration. As I said, Americans are being killed by automobiles. 40,000 Americans are killed every year by automobiles. That's around 110 people a day. Imagine if our commercial aviation system was killing 110 people a day. We'd be outraged. It seems to be okay when it comes to traffic. Well, autonomous vehicles can possibly, not guaranteed, but possibly reduce that by quite a bit. But they're promising a lot. They're saying, well, why, why do we need public transit? Why do we need bike infrastructure? Aren't autonomous vehicles going to come along and fix things? Well, we've heard this before. This is, this is what they promised us in the early 20th century. On the left side is something called Futurama. Not the cartoon that Matt Groening produced, but that's where he got the name from. But Futurama was an exhibit at the 1939 World Fair in New York City, and it was sponsored by GM, General Motors, and you sat there on a conveyor belt in a chair, and you went slowly around the room, and you looked down at a physical model of the city, that was a city of the future where if we built highways everywhere, it would be beautiful and free and cars could move and look how wonderful that city will be. And this is from the architect Le Corbusier, who was working at the same time, and he was developing plans for cities that basically were assumed that most people got around by automobiles. And again, they were giving us this rosy view of the future. If we just turn our cities over to automobiles, look how nice our cities will be. And this is what we actually got. <laughs> so I'm not against autonomous vehicles, mind you. I think they're very useful, and I'm glad we're doing work in that area. I'm glad about Smart Columbus's effort. I'm glad about the efforts on this campus. But we have to worry about overpromising. And we have to think carefully about this new technology, just like we should have thought about highways 100 years ago. And there's two scenarios for the future of autonomous vehicles, heaven or hell. Heaven. An AV heaven will be if autonomous vehicles support public transit, if they allow us to create compact cities, if they provide better access for all, including people with different abilities, and they allow us to have walkable and bikeable neighborhoods. What could happen, and this is the choice we're facing now, and this is what we have to think about very carefully, the health scenario is we'll have more congestion, everyone will have an autonomous vehicle, we haven't solved our congestion problem. Cars just move closer together, but they're still congested. We'll have more sprawl because people won't think twice about two-hour commutes. Higher inequity, if everyone has to own an autonomous vehicle in the future, people who can't afford that technology will be out of the picture. And segregated roadways. And here's the thing they're not saying about autonomous vehicles. Autonomous vehicles need a predictable environment. And humans are not predictable. We never will be predictable. That's what makes us beautiful. To get autonomous vehicles to work, there's a real danger that they're going to engineer roads so that humans are not allowed anymore. So imagine having a city full of roads where they're fenced off, where you can't cross anywhere. 
I've seen, I've actually seen a, a Carl Ratty at MIT has a simulation he likes to show where he shows an auto, a, a completely autonomous intersection where cars are just going through continuously. No, no red light, no stop signs, just cars go through and avoid each other. And the last time I saw him give this at an address similar to this at a conference, I raised my hand and said, I love that, that's really cool. Tell me how a cyclist or pedestrian gets through that intersection. That's what we have to worry about. We want to, we want to use autonomous vehicles carefully and not double down on this car, car dominance, all-wheel dominance. Things could get a lot worse than they are now, not better. What we have to think about is mobility beyond ownership, mobility as a service. Not something you need to own, but something you can configure, like using a smartphone, that would involve you know, creating a combination of modes, bike sharing, scooters, rides uh, sharing, taxis and limos, car sharing. Be able to configure mobility services on the spot when and where you want to travel that's appropriate for that, for that situation. Now, if this sounds fanciful, but one of the first projects you're going to see pretty soon of Smart Columbus is a multimodal trip planning application where you're going to be able to configure if it works. They're still, they're still testing it right now. But if it works, you're going to be able to configure mobility on taxi, Uber, Lyft, bike share, Kona, all of this using a single payment system. That's mobility as a service. You don't need a car. You just configure it like any other service. Now, again, you think, come on, Harvey, come on. We love our cars. How are we going to change? Things do change. Here's an example of mobility change right here. I remember when they used to say, don't get in strangers' cars and don't meet people from the internet. But nowadays, we literally summon strangers from the internet to get in their cars. <laughs> we can change. We can change our behavior. We have changed our behavior. So you ask me, well, what's the future of cars then? Here's the future of cars. The future of cars should be very similar to the history of horses. So this is a, a photograph from 1910 in New York City showing how congested cities were with horses. That's the way cities were in the early 20th century. In Columbus, I've seen the data, Columbus, we had one horse for every three people who lived in Columbus. Imagine thir a third of our city residents being horses. It was a mess, literally. I mean, literally a mess. <laughs> but what happened to horses? We didn't get rid of horses. Horses are still around. What we did is that horses stopped from being something that met all our mobility needs to meeting niche mobility needs, like royal weddings. <laughs> and that's really what we need with cars. I'm not, none, of us, none of us sustainable transportation people want to say, we're banning cars. That's wrong. We're not banning cars. What we want to do is reduce the number of cars. We want to reduce the number of cars in cities by 80 to 90%. And what we want to do is that we want to make a car unnecessary for most trips for most people. Not all trips for all people. There will be needs for, 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 for automobiles in the future. Let's say you have different abilities. Maybe um, it's late at night and you're afraid you know, it's low, it's because of crime in some neighborhoods. Maybe um, you're taking the kids and all their friends to soccer practice with all the gear. That's OK. We can use automobiles for that purpose, for those, those, those special purposes. But it's when we try to use it for everything, for all mobility needs all the time, that leads to the problem that they have. And that's the, that's the problem of our unsustainable mobility systems. So thank you. That's my talk today. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you have Take some questions for Harvey. Um, I usually begin by asking anybody who's high school student, is it this light keeps fun blinding me. There we go. 
Anybody who's a high school student or younger gets first priority on asking questions. Anybody here today? All right, uh, next up is college students. OSU, oh, OSU students, not Michigan students. <laughs> There's a student. There you go. Good, shout it out. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about uh, the possibility of underground transportation solutions? How does that fit into this? Won't work. <laughs> it's funny, yeah. Oh, sorry, repeat the question. So the gentleman was asking about underground transportation systems. And you were thinking of Elon Musk? and his plan to build a highway network under LA. Yeah. Coincidentally, I have an essay of a book coming out uh, any moment now about that. I was actually asked to address that particular question. Here's why it won't work. There's something called induced demand, and this is something we know now from theoretical models, but also from evidence, from decades of evidence. If you build highways, you generate more traffic. People think traffic is like water. Now, if we just make the pipes bigger, the water will flow faster. Traffic is like gas. It fills every available space you give it to. And we have a lot of evidence to show this. There's no question that this happens. It's now called the law of traffic congestion. A proportional increase in highway demand will lead to a proportional increase in traffic, and you're right back where you were before. The problem with Elon Musk's tunnel plan is that he says, well, if it ever gets congested, just drill deeper. Well, then you create more traffic, and then you have to drill deeper, and so forth and so on. And finally, you get to a system that's fantastically complex and very energy consumptive, and you've just basically extended the problem of traffic congestion to the third dimension, instead of doing it in two dimensions like we've done for the last century. He, he needs to, you know, he makes good batteries, maybe even good rockets. He needs to leave transportation planning to the professionals. That's my opinion <laughs> Sir, front row. Go ahead. Um, I live in Worthington and, and work in Dublin, and I travel back and forth four times a day in my car mm -hmm. during non-rush hour. It's not a problem for me, but I'm producing an enormous amount of pollution. Mm -hmm. what, what can I do in the next few years? You know? um, so the gentleman asked, he travels between Worthington and Dublin four times a day by car? On, on 270. On 270. You're not cons you're, it doesn't bother you, but you're concerned about your environmental footprint. Yes. Yeah. Best thing you do with the electric vehicle. And the electric vehicles are the future. They're actually much better than internal combustion engines. Um, as I mentioned, uh, internal combustion engines are really energy inefficient. Electric vehicles are very energy efficient. They're like 75 and above percent of the energy goes into propulsion. And also, they're much simpler. They have one tenth of the moving parts of an internal combustion engine. So they require less wear and tear. They'll be less expensive as soon as the cost starts to come down, and it'll require you a lot less um, yearly maintenance to maintain the things. So EVs are the future. Yeah, they, re they really are. Um, not, if we're going to have cars in the future. They should be, they should be electric. Yeah. And Columbus, by the way, is putting, there's a lot of, American Electric Power is working with Spark Columbus, and they're putting in a lot of, they're supposed to be putting in a lot of charging infrastructure here in the city. So pretty soon, at least within Columbus, electric vehicles will be viable as a town car. Leaving the city, that's, that's going to be a different story for a long time. Let's take a question here. Have you started looking into the different land use patterns and zoning and how that affects mobility? We have a lot of single-use uh, individual housing and, and how that we can change that, too. That's the other side of the coin. So the person asked, well, do you look at land use and zoning and other requirements? Yes, that's other, the other part of it. It's not just about moving people. It's about bringing things closer together as well. And a lot of our zoning is based upon exclusionary zoning, where we separate land uses. And that's a 20th century mentality that we have to move beyond now and think more about integrating uses. 
The other thing is uh, elimination of minimum parking requirements. Now, a lot of cities around the country, more progressive cities, have eliminated minimum parking requirements. Buffalo has in the city center, Seattle. Cincinnati, our neighbor to the south, Cincinnati, has eliminated minimum parking requirements. If those of you don't know, this is where when a developer comes in and builds, let's say, a commercial property or residential, the city requires them to build so much off-street parking per bedroom, per unit. And um, it's often more than what the, what, the, uh, prof, what the market needs, especially in the city center. I belong to my, my neighborhood association, Harrison West Society, and one developer came to us and said, look, I'd like to build less parking, but the city makes me build this. We need to get rid of that. We need to, we're, we're subsidizing parking. We're subsidizing driving by doing that. Let's take a couple of the quick questions. Um, go ahead, miss. is if you want to real, if you want to have a good cry, which I do every once in a while. <laughs> I look, yeah, I look at. Um, oh, the question was, why can't we talk about trains in Columbus and buses? Trains, buses are just not as appealing to most people than, than trains. Is that basically just your question? Yeah, if you want to have a good cry, look at a 1910 map of the of the uh, rail of the street rail system in Columbus, <laughs> and we tore it all up. You know, we got rid of it. Sometimes I feel like Charlton Heston at the end of Planet of the Apes and screaming at the Statue of Liberty. You blew it up. Why? Because we used to have rail through this entire city, through the central city, and we got rid of it, sadly. What about the future of rail? I would love to see rail because rail is the most energy efficient form of transportation besides water. But we're not going to build canals and lakes everywhere. So, um, and it's reliable, more reliable than water. Yeah. Um, but real quick, um, right now, given the cost of building these projects in the United States and the time, I think that's a good long-term vision and we should think about it. But I think more immediately, we could build a good public transit system using true bus rapid transit. And not like the CMAX system, which basically sits in traffic. If we devoted more of our street space to dedicate bus lanes and have like nice stops and ways for people to pay before they get on the bus, that would make buses more attractive. And that would be, we should do that anyways, even if we want to build rail because we can't build rail everywhere. But that would be a good stepping stone to a future where I can see rail being integrated into that system. So I think that's something we really need to work on here in Columbus. Two more quick questions. One more. What about monorail? <laughs> you know? Um, too advanced? Monorail. Too expensive. It's too expensive. That's the that's main reason. Monorail anywhere um, has mostly been for tourist reasons, and it really hasn't worked anywhere. As a uh, Seattle had monorail. That's as a tourist one. Also, um, Sydney, I think, also has monorail. Where? Las Vegas has one, but it's right, yeah. short and for tourists. That's just to get people back and forth from casinos. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. So with the ride sharing that you have, uh, do you have any data as to what percentage of the population is using the ride-sharing that you have? Uh, do you have any data as to why car to go disappeared? And will that be coming back? I'm not the person. I'm not the person. I, I know the person who ran car to go in Columbus. Um, they pulled out a lot of cities. They just could not make a profit for some reason. I don't have any hard data on that. So sorry, she was asking about Cardigal. Why did Cardigal go leave? I miss it terribly. Because <laughs> one of the things about ride-sharing services, like our car-sharing services like that, is we can get people to not buy a car in the first place. We've won most of the battle. 
Once a person buys a car, the battle's lost. They're going to use it. So the big thing is to try to get people to imagine living in the city center without requiring a car. And that's something that Carnegie was able to do. And unfortunately, they're gone now. Let's take one last question from Hat Guy. Hat Say again, I'm sorry. Have you, have you guys looked at how we would influence the corporate economics part of this? So the corporate economics. We're looking at, for example, manufacturers like GM and pushing cars in Detroit, but you name it. But how do we, uh, I like the vision Right, yeah. And you know, yeah, there's a lot of vested interest in continuing to sell cars and oil and, and so forth. Yeah, so the question is what, what about the corporate side of it? The corporations are still pushing automobiles on us. Yeah, um, some of the more enlightened ones, like Ford Motor Company, they're, they're actually thinking beyond car ownership. They're actually thinking about becoming a mobility service company in the future. And they've made some forays into this already. But yeah, um, we have to basically change mindsets. You know, the corporations go where the market goes, of course. They do influence the market quite a bit. One might call it brainwashing. But, um, you know, and I'm a big believer, you know, people say, well, how do we change people's mindset? I'm a big believer that we just have to have strong leadership and just start building things. And once you start building things like good bus rapid transit and light rail, People will see, if, if we do it well, people will see the benefits of it, and it'll, it'll be a natural shift. You know, cars are not natural in cities. The only reason why we have so many cars in cities is because we chose, you know, the, in the mid-1950s 19, to basically plow highways through cities and to go through and, and to subsidize uh, suburbs. This is, not, this is not a natural market outcome. It was imposed by, by corporations and by the government. So now it's time to start winding that back. And if we start building alternative transportation infrastructure, people start to see the benefits of it, it could work. The trouble is that most people, our view of public transit in the United States is crappy because we're used to decades of crappy public transit. If we build good public transit, I think really people will see the light. I honestly believe that. Okay, so that wraps up the questions. Any good news and bad news? Okay. Thank you.